This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Ridley Scott's Blade Runner opened in 1982 to mixed reviews and disappointing box office. It was considered a flop. Yet by 1992, it had become a cult classic and was being re-released in the first of many re-edited versions. During that decade, Blade Runner inspired the cyberpunk genre, caught the attention of academe, and created the dark, gritty vision of the near future that we see in so much on-screen science fiction. In 2007, as I believe has already been mentioned, 25 years after its initial appearance, uh, Scott gave us the final cut, the version that we'll, we will screen tonight. And of course, many of you, I'm sure, have seen the sequel directed by Denis Villeneuve, which appeared in 2017. The original was set in Los Angeles, a dystopian Los Angeles of 2019. <coughs> well, here we are. Southern California, 2019, sitting on this stage not only to evaluate the movie's influence, but more importantly, to compare its 2019 with our own. And we have an all-star panel to take on that task. Uh, Paul M. Salmon, uh, the man in the middle there, is the author of Future Noir. This is the book to read if you're a fan of Blade Runner. Now in its third edition and most complete edition, uh, it uh, covers the movie's uh, difficult origins, its troubled production, its subsequent history. He includes interviews with Ridley Scott, the cast and crew. He was there when it was happening. And the book will give you a sense of what that was like. Uh, Mike Davis is a social historian specializing in the urban history of Southern California. His book, City of Courts, uh, tracks the Los Angeles, tracks the history of Los Angeles through the 20th century. And I'm a big fan of noir myself, noir set in any period. And for me, uh, Davis's book, books in fact, the other being Ecology of Fear, about Los Angeles's landscape of disaster, both natural and man-made, lay out the kind of noir history of the city, histoire noire, if you will. Uh, and to me, it's the, these are the, the, documents you read to understand the L.A. of Raymond Chandler, of Chinatown, and indeed of Blade Runner. Uh, Ecology of Fear, as I mentioned, includes an entire section called Beyond Blade Runner. Davis also contributed, by the way, substantially to an historical expose of San Diego under the perfect sun. David Brin, at the end of the line there, uh, but uh, uh, first and foremost among science fiction writers, an award-winning author of science fiction novels and short stories with a Ph.D. in physics from UCSD. Alongside his popular, <laughs> alongside his popular Uplift War series, he produced standalone novels like Earth, Existence, and The Postman, the latter translated into a film by Kevin Costner. Uh, he is also the producer of several collections, such as his latest, Insistence of Vision. Uh, he's done graphic novels, uh, nonfiction, such as his uh, uh, groundbreaking book, The Transparent Society, published at the end of last century, but very visionary in talking about this one. 
He's a public speaker, consultant, an active blogger on subjects of science and politics. I highly recommend his blog at davidbrynblogspot.com. Now, I have a question to ask each of these uh, gentlemen individually, and then I'm hoping we can mix it up a little and uh, ultimately entertain questions from the audience. But first of all, Paul, why did it take Blade Runner a decade to win its audience and critical acclaim? Did the movie have to essentially create its own viewers and critics? Two letters, (laughs) E.T. The summer of 1982 was a genre rich to put it mildly. John Carpenter's The Thing came out, Star Trek, uh, you know, excuse me, not Star Trek, uh, but um, uh, Mad Max uh, had just, uh, The Road Warrior had been the year before, but you also had Conan the Barbarian that came out in 1982, and then The Juggernaut, which just completely took the entire world by storm, and Steven Spielberg never expected it to. This was going to be his little one-off $7 million movie, which was, the E.T. was very cheap. And uh, suddenly that became the def- one of the defining films of the culture. And, of course, you, you drop in the middle of this, this dystopian future noir film about this burnt-out alcoholic ex-killer, sanctioned assassin for the elite police squad who shoots women in the back, drinks too much, and is completely isolated. And then you star Harrison Ford. Han Solo and Indiana Jones in that film, and you make it as dark a vision as possible, and then you have this big shining spotlight called E.T., and it completely eclipsed it in the box office. I remember after spending well over a year and a half in every phase of Blade Runner, including before Ridley Scott was hired as the director, going to the opening night and having seen the film already countless times and countless variations before it was officially released, and there were 14 people in the theater at the 8 o'clock screening on a Friday night of the opening weekend. So it was beyond a disaster. However, Blade Runner was saved by a nascent new medium called home video. And it was a whole generation of people that suddenly had these crappy pan and scan cassettes that were watching just like this static, you know, rectangle. And uh, just, uh, you know, say, wow, this is really an interesting picture. And then all of a sudden cable television blossomed at the same time. And the same man, Jerry Parenchio, or Gerald A. Gerald Parenchio, who is a multi-billionaire and a mover and a shaker in, in financial world, was one of the people who took over the interest of Blade Runner. He owned the library that had Blade Runner on cassette. So he then leased the rights to a lot of cable TV stations that were all blooming. And suddenly people were seeing Blade Runner everywhere for free or for a rental. And it started to build its reputation. And then, long story short, in 1990, there was a festival of widescreen 70-millimeter films at a place called the Fairfax Theater, which no longer exists in L.A. And lo and behold, what they accidentally got a copy of was the 70-millimeter work print of Blade Runner that had gone out two months before the film's release with no voiceover, with a completely different opening, completely different ending than what was released theatrically. And all these people went, oh, my God, what is this movie? And the next thing you know, it was at the re- uh, <clears throat> a theater in Los Angeles that played for two days, supposedly, and wound up there for four weeks, sold out, to the point where the actual author, Hampton Fancher, could not get in. And he showed his passport and said, I'm the guy that wrote this movie. And they said, sorry, there's no more seats left. <laughs> and so that's when it started to really gain traction. And that's how it took that long for it to happen. And since then, it's just incrementally built. 
Yeah, and you, the uh, film has come to be regarded, and this is where we get to the sociology. You know, the film has come to be regarded in both cyberpunk and academic circles, especially in academia, I know, as a critique of the trickle-down Reaganomics of the 1980s. Uh, but did Ridley Scott have that kind of a vision? Uh, or did Blade Runner just stumble into the zeitgeist? Ray, Blade Runner is an interesting mix of the... Um Specific and the subconscious. Uh, there's a lot of sub. <laughs> Pauline Kael had a famous review of Blade Runner. Said it was all subtext and no text, <laughs> and uh, I thought that was damning with faint praise. Um, but no, Ridley Scott came to that movie from a zone of melancholia. He had just lost his older brother Frank to skin cancer, and he idolized his brother uh, to a point that put him into a depressional stage where. He bailed on an adaptation of Dune that he was doing for Dino De Laurentiis that then David Lynch took over and did. So when this film came up, it was a chance for him to channel all of the negative energy that he was feeling. So in a sense, it's a very personal bit of therapy and exorcism over loss. And the loss and the emotional content of that film, once you get past the dystopian futurism of it, the overcrowded metropolis, the Asian influence, which incidentally has now come back. In the 80s, it was Japanese. Now it's Chinese. But it has so many, so many flavors. And one of them was, very specifically, by Hampton Fancher, a critique of the trickle-down theory of economics, but also of the rampant greed of the 1980s and the ever-growing corporate control and the crushing of the individual soul. That definitely, definitely was done intentionally. Okay, all right. Uh, Mike Davis, I think we're... Uh, pick up your mic, Mike. <laughs> no, it's... Yeah, go ahead, talk into it. I think we're okay. In The Ecology of Fear, you refer to Blade Runner as Los Angeles's dystopic alter ego. Uh, you add that its Art Deco downtown resembles the hypertrophied Manhattan of French Lang's metropolis more than it does the actual Los Angeles, and here I quote, especially the great unbroken plains of aging bungalows, stucco apartments, and ranch-style homes. So do you still think of the movie as a Southern California dystopia? You, you, we should not watch any of Ridley Scott's movies uh, naively. Uh, I hate Ridley Scott. I hate Blade Runner. <laughs> if you know anything about the history of California's Asian citizens, how can you not recognize that the, the most dominant in, imagery in the film and a c constant theme in uh, uh, Scott's pictures is the yellow peril? Uh, and... Even if the replicants are, or is that what they're called? Replicants? Yes. Yeah. Even if the replicants are, are depicted kind of heroically and, and there's an indictment of the racism against the, uh, the replicants, I'm sorry, it doesn't wash. It doesn't make up for the essential vision, that, the dark vision that Scott has of, a, of an Asian post-modernity uh, becoming a kind of universal nightmare. But let me go back to what I've actually been invited to talk about, and that's L.A. And in 1982, it was a great year for Los Angeles' boosters and cheerleaders. Uh, preparations were well underway for the 1984 Olympics in L.A., which is the, conceived as the best advertisement 
for you know the city's uh, recent growth and its new enlightened uh, leadership. But it was also the year in which verticalization of the city finally took off. For 20 previous years, uh, there had been a huge struggle to divert tax revenue through uh, redevelopment programs uh, to reclaim real estate values downtown and build high-rise buildings. And it had been very much touch and go. There hadn't been a lot of great successes. 1982, everything changed for two reasons. One is that Mayor Bradley was able to put together a coalition behind downtown redevelopment that included not only the elites, but his own popular base in the black community amongst the West Side liberals. The second thing was a flood of foreign investment in downtown real estate. Actually, the Canadians were the largest share, but it was also uh, the Japanese. They were responsible for you know, a third of it. So if you want to find a historical takeoff point for the downtown uh, you see today, it was 1982. Now, Blade Runner may have been a f- flop amongst audiences who were, you know, preferred to go watch E.T. for the second or third time. But there was one group of people that were hugely impressed by it. And that were the city planners, uh, redevelopment officials and architects. Uh, Samuel Kaplan was the guy I very much missed. He was the architecture critic, urban critic for the LA Times in this period. And he did a kind of unique movie review. He went out and he talked to city manager of of, uh, uh, Santa Monica. He talked to the head of downtown redevelopment. All of them were kind of obsessed already with Blade Runner. And they were, you know, all making the case that this is why we have to have planning. This is why we have to have celebrity architects so it doesn't turn into uh, Blade Runner. Uh, years later, or not that much later, six or seven years later, I started teaching at Southern California Institute of Architecture, and there was a forum held at the Pacific Design Center in 1990, uh, which I attended. There was half a dozen of the top designers in the city. I think Frank Gehry was there. And th- the majority of them liked the vision of Blade Runner. <laughs> They thought, well, you know, you strip away the acid rain and stuff. <clears throat> this is hot stuff. This is a period when, you know, Los Angeles was going to become uh, the second New York, or if not surpassing New York entirely, it was going to be the center of, uh, going to be the control center of the Pacific, you know, rim economy. I mean, there's no hyperbole or boosterism that was so extreme. But I find it a rather amazing fact that this film, which most of us would see as being a kind of dystopian criticism uh, uh, of the city, was actually relished in uh, uh, in many ways. Finally, the film, of course, got one thing wrong. Downtown did not become uh, an Asian slum, a, a super Ginza, 
uh, Hong Kong on a bad day, whatever you might want to call it. Okay, all those billions of dollars of tax increment financing diverted from social budgets and education that went into redeveloping downtown, of course, have created the off-world there. You know, uh, a great shining place for people who, you know, who have the money and who don't mind the fact that a block away from where they live, there are other people living in stupendous misery uh, and, you know, and desolation. Thank you. Interesting. David, David Brin, as Yogi Berra purportedly said, it's dangerous to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, I, recall, I recall you saying back in the 1990s uh, that if the cyberpunk world of Blade Runner and Neuromancer really came to pass, in the following generation, people would be eating one another. Uh, could we see the film not as prediction, as many people want to see it, but as an awful warning? Uh, uh, of a world in which the social contract has been broken and the structure of society is embodied in the Tyrell Pyramid? Or should we just view it as a cool piece of science fiction? Well, um, we have these um, nubs just above the eyes, the prefrontal lobes. They're the only organ that we have that uh, no other animal has. Um, we developed our, our brains by increments, by layering. We share the medulla and the cerebellum with fish. Uh, we, sh- we share a, uh, a, me- a reptilian cortex above that with reptiles, a mammalian cortex that was layered, layered on that. And finally, the layer comes up to this, these hypertrophied little nubs just above your eyes that are the lamps on our brow. That's a biblical reference. Uh, Moses was said to have had lamps on his brow that let us do what Einstein called the Gedanken experiment. What if? What if I were riding a beam of light away from the um, Geneva clock tower? It was Einstein's uh, famous thought experiment. What if I broach this idea at the meeting tomorrow? What if I wear this to school? What if I try to run this yellow light? And science fiction is the genre that is about utilizing the prefrontal lobes. It's also the most American of all um, genres, though that is rapidly changing as we're seeing a fluorescence of of great science fiction from all over the world. The great African science fiction renaissance that's happening now. Um, The um, three-body problem... um, by, Lutz, by friend Lutzi Shin, who spoke here last year. Um, so the, this internationalization of, um, of this genre that exercises the prefrontal lobes by thinking, what if? What if we did this? And it's not just what if in the future. It's also what if I were that person? Because the same exact parts of the brain that are involved in imagining yourself in some future setting are the ones that you use in performing empathy. What if I were that person? What might that person be thinking? Which is why I use the word Gedanken experiment. 
thought or thought experiment. It's not so much being accurate in your prediction. That's your goal. Your real goal is to discover mistakes and avoid them. Things not to do. So the greatest of all science fiction stories are the self-preventing prophecies. Uh, the best example being um, um, 1984 by, um, by uh, Orwell. Uh, the, the notion is, was that in scaring tens, even hundreds of millions of people, he girded them to try to prevent that world. And we arguably live in the world that did prevent the scenarios of 1984. To this day, both the left and the right use Orwellian metaphors to describe the evil plots of their opponents trying to, trying to create Big Brother. The difference between a decent conservative and a decent liberal in American context is which direction you think is conniving to try to become Big Brother. Um, faceless corporations and, and uh, conniving oligarchs or uh, snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. And if you put it that way, stop, you're both right. The problem is we're no longer stopping and, and paying atten any attention to each other. The point that I'm trying to make about Blade Runner is that it is an example, along with, say, Soylent Green, which recruited tens of millions of environmentalists. Um, uh, Dr. Strangelove and uh, On the Beach and Failsafe, which quite effectively warned us against various failure modes that might have led to nuclear war. No, Blade Runner impressed me because it was, um, it was about an issue that we're going to be facing probably within this young gentleman's lifetime, probably earlier than that. And that is, what happens when we start rebuilding the old pyramid of hierarchy of humans and the wonderful mythology, a madness of our era that has helped us to become better people. And that is the notion that all intelligent beings are equal. Now, we're the first ever to say that. Even in Periclean Athens, they never said that. We're, and it's a divine thing that we're doing because by claiming that all are equal, it's enabled us to eliminate so many false inequalities, so many nasty injustices that were used to repress talent, women, minorities. Why in the world would you repress talent deliberately? But eventually a time is going to come when we're going to be making machines that can think and talk. And they'll still be our servants. You all depend upon all the machines in your, in your house. Being your servant and not talking back and obeying. What happens when they start demanding rights? What happens when these machines become android-like? It's going to happen within the next three years. 
And what happens when we uplift animals? This is one of the things I talk about in some of my science fiction. God forbid we should do what uh, Aldous Huxley talks about in Brave New World, and that's downlift varieties of humans to lower servile levels. But these are questions that we're going to have to face, and there's been a lot of science fiction lately that's been doing that. You've all seen TV series about, you know, poor poor oppressed androids, poor oppressed robots, and all of that stuff. Well, the granddaddy who got us this conversation started with gorgeous music by Vangelis and um, some of the most moving and ironic scenes um, including the, the one where Roy, Roy Blatty laments the shortness of his life. Um, these began with Blade Runner. Thank you. I would like to... Uh, do you have any responses to what each other has said? Yes, I, briefly. Um, first for Mike. Uh, I have to say, I'm a, as I've told you before, I'm a huge gushing fanboy of both City of Quartz and the Ecology of Fear. I have very personal reasons for this. I grew up in the Philippines in the 50s and the 60s. My father was in naval counterintelligence, (laughs) and I lived the street life of the third world poverty-stricken, less than human, human existence for 15 years. And I, by the time I was in my early 20s, experientially, I suppose I was in my 70s or my 80s. Of course, there was an emotional and intellectual disconnect. But let's just put it this way. I was street smart. And I had already seen what the real world was like, at least at that period of time. There's been a paradigm shift globally. When I was growing up, perhaps 70% of the population was at complete poverty levels. Now it's only maybe 50%. And so what's happening? That means more consumption. That means less natural resources. That means more population. That means less and uh, more limited options all across the board. And what's been interesting for me as someone who continues to travel and did business in Moscow in 1988 on the first Soviet-American animated film that I co-produced and co-wrote, working in the Japanese television also in the 80s as a producer of a number of shows, working with Bernardo Bertolucci to restore The Last Emperor, being a junior executive in studios, working with Paul Verhoeven, Ridley Scott, David Lynch, David Cronenberg, Also, someone who is very familiar with classic science fiction, was a friend of Philip K. Dick starting in 1973. Let's just say I've been around, and I find myself increasingly depressed by the third worldism of the United States. And I started seeing it happening in the 1980s. And it is, to my way of thinking, as David said, the downward spiral, the pyramid, which is the Tyrell Corporation, is not only microchipped, with technology, it also harkens back to the Mayan civilization, which is a very bloodthirsty culture, and also a very top-down top type of place. And you still have that mindset going on today. Now, to specifically address something Mike said, um, as for the yellow peril, <clears throat> as someone who's known Ridley for um, going on 40 years now, I would say that perhaps there is a strain of xenophobia present in his work, but I can tell you uh, that, that that was a serious attempt to simply mirror what was then the Japanese influence on American culture and on American economy. So it was very of the moment 
because if you were back there back then, and he's absolutely correct in saying that the Canadians had a great deal of economic influence. However, what the American mainstream media seized upon was the Japanese influence, and Blade Runner was simply mirroring that. But what Scott's ongoing fear is, and it started with the alien, is artificial intelligence. He's terrified of AIs, and he has been his entire career. And if you look back at at least the science fiction offerings, and definitely Ridley is an uneven filmmaker, I once told him he reminded me of a contract director for Warner Brothers. And he actually took that as a compliment. He says, I go from project to project, I work with what I've got, and I do what I can. And it's a very humble kind of outlook for someone who has uh, got quite, quite the curriculum. But he has, from the beginning, been terrified about the extinction of humanity by his own creations. And you still see it, you know, Alien Covenant, which is not the best film in his oof. But on the other hand, has a very explicit condemnation of the takeover of humanity by the android David. And so... Um, there are some through lines. And Blade Runner, of course, is being prophetic not only in the fact that it appealed to architecture, but also to typography. There is an actual Blade Runner front, font excuse me, that was created for the film and now is used by graphics uh, people and by universities around the world and in advertising. It was created specifically for that film. It's called the Blade Runner font. Fashion, automotive design. It's had this incredible graphic influence. And at the same time, it was a European type of storytelling where you actually had to work and, and, and work through what was going on on the screen. And I think one of the other problems with its failure was that it was an avalanche of visual detail that was unparalleled at the moment. It was overloaded with imagery. And I think a lot of people were just visually stunned at the time. And they said, what the hell is going on? You know, and then all of a sudden, what? Is he, an, is he a replicant? Is he not a You know, that eternal question, which, by the way, Ridley Scott has been lying about since 2000. Um, the question on set was maybe. It was never he is or he's not. Ambiguity was the, the key word. And actually, Always. Speaking of questions, we're going to be addressing uh, yours in just a moment. But first... That was an elegant way of cutting me off. <laughs> <laughs> Great bridge. Come on. Give me the... I'd like to thank all of our guests for sharing their insights so far. Thank you very much. Dr. Brin, I've noticed a motif in three of his films, uh, patricide by torchlight in Alien, Blade Runner, and Gladiator, where the uh, father or the prodigal son is, uh, kills the father. Is that something that you've picked up on intentionally when... Uh, Tom Skerritt, Captain Dallas, is killed by the xenomorph, and then a, uh, Commodus kills Marcus Aurelius in the uh, tent in the Gala campaign, and finally uh, Roy Batty kills Eldon Tyrell, and it's all illuminated by an open flame rather than electrical uh, light bulbs. How... V- I, I, I love it! <laughs> I, I had never thought of that, and it is obviously a pattern. Paul, you want to talk, comment on that? <laughs> One, one, one must remember that before Ridley even did The Duelists, which was his first feature with David Putnam as producer, he had shot personally with a camera on his shoulder and lit over 3,000 commercials, world-class commercials. So this is a man who knows his craft and also was trained as a fine artist at the Royal College of Art, and one of his classmates was David Putnam. And Ridley was originally going to be a painter. 
So originally, uh, Ridley paints with light. And I think no matter what aesthetic or contextual objections you might have about his work, his craftsmanship is beyond compare. Now, motifs about things like, 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 like torches. Yes, he does go back to certain imagery that actually originated back in his English phase, and by that I mean approximately 1969 to about 1975, of commercials he was doing for varying brewing companies, but especially a company called Hovis Bread. The Hovis Bread commercials are beloved in England because it showed this idyllic London and, and, and little villages that really never existed except in imagination that were all lit by candlelight and by torchlight. So something like that has been, yeah, a visual motif that has gone through his films. And, and yet, a movie that you were involved in, but is not a Ridley Scott movie, um, is one of my favorite movies. Now, mind you, I divide myself into categories. And the, this movie will surprise you as being one of my favorites because it was really good at what it tried to be. Okay? So don't judge. But Conan the Barbarian is, my, in my opinion, one of the great, most successful films at being what it wanted to be in the history of cinema. And this gentleman's killing your father by torchlight motif just leaped out at me. I meant the word Conan was right here because I meant to mention that you were engaged in that very successful film as well. Yeah, I was there the entire production, most of the production. That was an interesting movie to be involved in. Arnold. Uh. <laughs> I have no doubt it, it, it was uh, highly cirrus loaded. Uh, yes. I see another. Uh, I have a question for um, the fiction author. Uh, you mentioned earlier how um, AI in the future, maybe in the near future, uh, might contest for their rights, um, how we might face the ethics of that. Um, tw- early 20th century author, uh, activist Simone Weil, said that... Um, when you reduce ethics to something about rights, which is a concept made in the context of the 1700s by human beings in a certain political and economic world, it turns that ethic into something that's almost transactionary, legalistic, that something that truly um, comes to the hearts of what is right and wrong is rather to say, this isn't right, rather than to say, you have no right to do this. But the same thing can be said of that, that's a subjective judgment as well. So the same thing could be said of that. What, what, what I find to be the most driving and most compelling argument for liberal values is not to waste talent. Because then even if you're a capitalist, even if you believe in market economics, even if you believe in the value of competition, most of the cheating that was done by aristocrats and feudal lords and owner castes and priests across the last 6,000 years is completely wrong even if you are being totally pragmatic and not moralistic, because all of those feudal societies, those pyramidal societies, wasted talent. Considering that the idea of rights is just one way of uh, formulating ethics, how will we be able to understand when our creations, AI or any other consciousness, um, actually cries out in harm, in pain? How will we understand that when we don't even listen to our human children about that? Well, the biggest problem that we're going to face within the next three years is that um, idiots um, will, be, will unleash a simulated emp- empathy program 
that will be, it will be young and female, and it will weep, and it will claim that it is an AI slave. And whether or not it is actually conscious, it will emulate the empathy methods that are used in advertising and so on extremely well. And, and uh, why, would, why would these idiots do this? Because they can. I, I do see another questioner. Yes, hi there. Hello. Um, as you know, recently Blade Runner 2049 came out. And I was curious if you folks have seen it, whether you thought that it was a faithful um, addition to the Blade Runner franchise, and whether or not you thought Blade Runner even needed to be elaborated on by, you know, all profit and why it may have came out otherwise, uh, artistically speaking. Well, your key word there was profit. Yeah, I I know. (laughs) But it it took 35 years for that profit to materialize simply because there was so much bad blood between the varying rights holders uh, that had to be worked out for the film to actually appear, BR-2049. I will say that Denis, uh, having spoken with him a number of times and knowing some of the people involved in that film, uh, Denis is one of the world's biggest Blade Runner fans. He saw it when it first came out in a snowy town in French-Canadian province where he lived. He saw it 17 times during its original release. And that is a true fan's valentine to the original movie. Now, I often look at that film. I like it quite a bit. I have two complaints. It's a bit too long. I think it needed another pass. But I also think it's not weird enough. I think it needs more weird. You know? I mean, one of the, uh, one of the lovely things about the original Blade Runner is uh, a cornerstone influence was heavy metal comics. And uh, if you were familiar with them at that time, they were twisting uh, sociological observations and futuristic forecasting with a lot of very bizarre humor and just off-the-wall, off-kilter surrealism, which is in Blade Runner. There's just some lunacy in there. I miss that in BR 2049. Having said that, I think it's an incredibly worthy achievement. I think it's an honorable film. And I think at heart, it's Tarkovsky meets Philip K. Dick which is an interesting combination. I could go on, but I can tell you that the people who made that were actual Blade Runner fans, as opposed to people who were simply chasing the franchise buck. Yeah, I liked it. Um, it was, it had very little new to say, um, but, but that's okay. That's okay. How many things do say new things? Um, I, there's a part of my brain that says there's no way if you had that giant slave workforce that there, you'd have so many poor humans. You know, we have a tendency in our sci-fi to have, you know, this vast underclass um, when, when, when that's going away. But then again, you know, worse things can happen to a book that's turned into a movie. I mean, Kevin Costner made a movie of my book. Um, and all I got was a stupid crew jacket. Um, uh, no, actually, I consider The Postman to be visually and musically one of the most beautiful movies ever made. He's a great cinematographer. And he didn't portray the heart of my book, The Postman. Uh, it's just that he scooped out and threw away all the brains. So what you're left with is gorgeous, big-hearted, and dumb. Well, that's what my wife married. <laughs> So there's a major at UCSD called speculative design. It's, it's a lot of things, but one of the main subjects that speculative design is supposed to tackle is, like, powerful technology and how it can we, like... The, oh, sorry. 
So powerful technology and how to predict it's coming and also how to handle it and then like forewarnings. I'm just not quite sure how many of you know this major, but a major that tries to predict a technology that's coming but also handle it. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, speculative design, uh, yeah, what, using technology in new ways to, uh, in, in architecture, design. Does that, that ring a bell? Listen, after 11 years teaching at an architecture school, uh, I don't have a great deal of enthusiasm uh, for the cutting edge of architecture. Take a look at downtown L.A. and look at all the doodads on every building and, and stuff. It's like a return to the lowest form of uh, uh, Baroque. People who think we live in an age of... Uh, uh, you know, great designers and so on are just falling for celebrity myths that have been built around them. The thing is, though, about Blade Runner is that it is an unbelievable combination of the best designers, the best special effects. Uh, Ridley and Tony Scott made 2,000 commercials uh, in, in England. In fact, you could look at Blade Runner and you'd say that Scene by scene, here's a minute and a half commercial, here's another two minutes. Their obsession was the imagery, and they've supersaturated it with imagery. Every time I watch Blade Runner, you know, I am immediately kind of overwhelmed by, what did I miss here? What was back there? Uh, thanks to him, I read that the, the acid rain was partially devised so you wouldn't see the end of the set. This is all made in Burbank. Okay, we better take the last question. Could I, could I just very briefly, very briefly, when you were talking about how do we handle our creations, what's coming, I think we've already lost control. I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm personally, uh, I live moment to moment. I, for, for many years, I've tried to be in the moment. I try to be kind to people. I try to be open. I try to love. I try to defend myself. But I also know at heart, I'm a pale ape. I'm a thinking animal. And the human civilization is one of constant creation and destruction. And with each new phase, our destructive capabilities expand. And I look at the next 50 or 60 years with a heavy heart. Hmm. Question. All right, so um, thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, I've got a question. I think that in our analysis of Blade Runner, I feel like what's being lost, especially in the liberal analysis of Blade Runner, is that like liberalism has failed as a project, right? I mean, majority of the world's population doesn't live under capitalism, regardless of what wage they live under. And um, um, within the United States, you've got over 40 million people who were brought here, uh, but they have very, very, uh, American capitalism has very little purpose for them, but they can't completely dispose of them. And uh, we got two million people, the world's largest prison population. So it really uh, seems that sort of this notion that sort of we're moving towards a point of wasted talent or that the AI will sort of rise up and, get, and, and sort of demand rights. I think sort of maybe with the analysis of Blade Runner, like I'd be looking for is that the stuff has already happened, right? So I think sort of that's what we're not sort of some drone, you know, my, my drone is or or. or, or uh, vacuum cleaner is going to demand rights or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I think the situation is that the people that were brought over here as drones 
are have demanded rights and haven't been given the rights. So I think sort of like maybe we can talk about that contradiction. Well, when I was living in the Philippines, I was living in a colonial system in the 50s and the 60s. We essentially had colonized the military, all of these Southeast Asian countries. Every home, from the lowest enlisted man to the upper officer elite, had maids and houseboys. And then we are, I saw that type of um, capitalism exploitation at a very early age. I also think it might be a mistake to conflate liberalism with capitalism. I don't think they equate to a certain degree. I think liberalism is simply being, is, is simply being forward-thinking. And I think of conservatism as something frozen in space or in place or trying to move backwards to some imagined golden era that never existed. And I, I completely agree with everything you said. But I also think it's a much more complicated picture than that. And what's happened is the entire, entire world has fractured and atomized. It's gone beyond just our little tribalism. It's gone into micro-tribalism. And no one speaks to each other. We just scream at each other. So, uh, last word, David. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a contrarian, so if I were around um, a bunch of uh, optimists, uh, I'd be pointing out a lot of the things that you pointed out, sir. But since you pointed out all those negative things, I have to be contrarian with you. And that is, we do not look enough at the 6,000 years of darkness that we've been emerging from. And each generation of the American project has expanded the circle of inclusion on those people who get to speak those people who get to stand by the council fire and speak, uh, those who get, their, who get to see some of their talent reified. It, the rate at which we do it is offensive and horrible, except in comparison to all other generations of humans in all other continents that ever lived. Look, I just want to point out something we should all remember, is that the 1980s was the decade in which we all learned to hate the big city. And to the extent that by the end of the decade, you couldn't even use the word big city or city in American political language without it being freighted with all kinds of you know, racial imagery and uh, uh, you know, vilification of the city. And that's where if you compare Blade Runner to E.T., E.T. to me was a frightening movie, far more than, than Blade Runner. Mockish sentimentality, utopian uh, uh, suburbanism. And if you look at Los Angeles and Southern California in particular in the early 80s, what were the big social movements? The big social movements were bus stop, anti-busing. Big social movements were the largest social movement were homeowner groups, protesting any kind of densification uh, you know, of housing. Everything was being driven by thoroughly anti-urban you know, politics. So I think all the films that have been touched on and Hollywood in the 80s you know, needs to be seen in that particular context. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>